one again, the Northeast Georgia History Center's podcast. This is Marie Barlett, the Director of Education at the Northeast Georgia History Center. And today I have with us another wonderful guest, Dr. Gertie. Could you please introduce yourself? (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Thank you, Marie, for having me back. I'm Dr. Philip Gertie. I'm an Associate Professor of History at the University of North Georgia. And right now, I'm working on an article about uh, James Bond. So it's Live and Let Die. And then I'm looking at the kind of the intersection of the beliefs in the occult and supernatural in the 60s and 70s and how that intersects with uh, the movie Live and Let Die. So I'm having a lot of fun with that. Yeah, so if you are a regular here at the podcast, you will remember Dr. Gertie's. We did another podcast with Dr. Gertie called The History of James Bond and the Cold War, looking at the Cold War and how it interacted with James Bond, especially in the 50s and 60s and 70s, but even going up into now and how that kind of has shaped James Bond and still has a legacy within the, the Bond franchise. But today, we are not going to be thinking about James Bond in particular. We're going to be looking at the history of the quote-unquote, perhaps infamous Bond girl. Can you explain to us exactly what that is? You know, that's a really good question because I think we have many different aspects to it. So I think traditionally, and and I think the most popular image is that there's this sort of, always this kind of addendum to Bond, right? And that both the novels and the movies tend to be really patriarchal and stereotype women a certain way. And Bond girls sort of in quotes, right, that falls into that, that they're not independent, they're not strong, they're not, they're just following up Bond, they're being rescued by Bond, all of those things. But I think if you peel it away, though, both in the novels and the movies, you can see and certainly change over time that the way women are represented more recently than they were when the movies first came out is a definite progression. Well, one would hope, again, right, that that's the case. So looking at the different Bond girls, because it's more of a, as you were kind of saying, like an archetype, it's not necessarily a specific character. There are multiple Bond girls who have interesting names sometimes. <laughs> yes, that's right. That's the part that's the, right, that, that smacks you in the face the most when it comes to to being sort of offensive. And, and you have, no, let me put it this way, you have to understand the historical context, right? So, yeah. right, exactly. But the most shocking, yeah, yeah. So could you perhaps give us some of the historical context to perhaps those <laughs> names and maybe an example of perhaps some of them as well? Okay, so... Yeah, you're gonna make me blush over the <laughs> over the, the, the 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 audio. Um, yeah, I, so for instance, I think the most sort of infamous is Pussy Galore, right? And that sort of he doesn't need explaining what what sort of that uh, that Fleming is doing there, and that producers been using that name and the way the character is portrayed at times. And things like that feeds into it. But the movies kind of take it, especially the Roger Moore movies, take it almost to another level, right? So Holly Goodhead would be another one that, again, we would find kind of shocking for sure. And yeah, I often wonder why. And I think it's a it's a part of Fleming that is is, yeah, it's hard to explain why he's so almost misogynistic in that sense but at other times, not so much. But you would think in naming, that's almost essentializing, right? So the sexuality, the emphasis on the sexuality. And I guess if you look at Fleming in the movies, that's, that's, that's definitely a strong part of it. 
And as much as I'm trying to analyze it to find maybe some explanation there, I think there probably isn't. I think it is exactly what it seems to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My, my favorite is when I was reading, they're like, sometimes the names of Bond girls are double entendres. And I'm like, I'm not yes. sure. Some of them might you could perhaps say is a double entendre, but then some of them are just very direct. They are. Yeah. Like Agent Triple X from The Spy Who Loved Me. I mean, to, you don't have to write do a scholarly treatise on that to, to see exactly what's going on. Yes. Yeah. So could you give us some, perhaps some of the context to the historical context to why they were named that way, or mm. perhaps how it was viewed at the time of its publication? That's a, yeah, very good. So, you know, and that's where I think Fleming gets a little complex because on the one hand, I think he's coming out of the 1950s very traditional in England. And it's almost after you have to look at it as these changes over time, in the sense that you have the world wars. And during the world wars, women sort of gain a lot of ground in Britain. They take an active role, both on the home front, but even in in the military sense. And Fleming, with his wartime experience, would have very much had friends and, and colleagues who were women in the war effort. And I think he gained a lot of respect in that sense, coming from a very conservative background that he comes from. So you have the war and you have this almost period of more freedom, the blurring of gender lines, gender roles. But then you move into the 1950s and not unlike the U.S., you almost have a reapplication of those older, almost Victorian gender ideals. And Fleming comes out of that. But then after that, you have the 1960s, which, again, not unlike the U.S., you have the youth movement, you have counterculture, you have technology and media bringing a lot more, the transformation, or rather toward the, the opening up of ideas and discussions and things like that. And then in England as well, in the 1960s, there's this movement toward sort of more liberal sexual ideas and ideas about sexuality. So I think he comes out of that. He comes out of Fleming, that is, comes out of this idea of reimposing these sort of conservative ideas about gender, but at the same time, facing these newer ideas. So you can have in a name that sort of stereotyping, but at the same time, the the flip side of that is he's playing around with sexuality. Oftentimes see him in the way that people would have seen Playboy magazine. I think Playboy magazine to us now is, is very stereotypical. It is appalling in many ways, right? in Bond novels would have been the same way. But at the same time, I think if you had talked to Hugh Hefner, and he actually Hugh Hefner says this, that it's very sexually liberating. So what we see in one context, he would see in another one. And then Hefner is coming out of the context of the 50s and, and almost what he sees as repressed sexuality. And Fleming's not that different. I think Fleming views the way that he describes women, the way that women are portrayed as going against the grain as much as it's reinforcing. So it's, you see, it's, a, it's really complex, but it's in the sense, I think that's a good thing because you can see characters in his novels and then in the movies as well that don't fit those stereotypes. I mean, one of the most kind of, can I, I know how to put this? It's, it's the novel that a lot of people can't agree on, upon and it's, it's called The Spy Who Loved Me, which isn't like the movie at all. And The Spy Who Loved Me, two thirds of the novels told from a woman's point of view. Her name is Vivian Michelle, and she's very strong, very independent. And Bond doesn't show up until the later part of the novel. And so in many ways, it does it when people read it, it wasn't what they were expecting. They didn't expect to see a story about a young girl who had 
lots of sort of sexual adventures, right? Also was very individual in her ways of thinking, adventurous, things like that. And so when it comes out, there's a lot of debate about, well, where's James Bond? Where's the, you know, where's that sort of structure we're used to? So that's one example. I mean, there are many other examples, I think, from from Fleming and the movies too. (laughs) Because in the 1960s, when a lot of this is just starting out, of course, you have the sexual revolution going on in the background, which also kind of goes with the feminist movement, but not exactly, but it kind of counter each other in, in ways and go along with each other in ways. So it seems like the it, it very much the Bond girl has this idea of going along with the sexual revolution mm-hmm. and females finding their sexuality. Right. But perhaps do you think it still goes along with the feminist movement as well as females finding their independence as well? Or do you feel like the characters are still more dependent? That's a good question. Some um, overall, if I had to say it would be dependent, but you do have these example. So with Vivian Michelle from The Spy Who Loved Me, in the end, even though she is independent and is freer with her sexuality, in the end, Bond saves her, right? He's the, he comes in once again as almost that white knight who has to save the day. But there is an interesting character from the second novel, Moonraker, which is again, not like the movie. <laughs> A lot of the novels aren't like the movie, but the, the main female character is Gayla Brandt, who is an MI5 operative sent to kind of go undercover and investigate the villain Hugo Drax. And she always is suspicious of Bond. They become friends, but she is also a very strong character. And in the end, Bond thinks, oh, wow, when the mission is done, I'm going to go and have dinner with her. I'm going to seduce her. And he's got all planned out in his head. And she shows up and she says, well, I'm engaged. So it's been nice knowing you. I will see you later. And that's really how it ends is she's leaving off with her fiance, kind of, I think, breaking that mold, right? That, uh, that we, that come, people come to expect a bond. So certainly there is glimmers, I think, of where Fleming was trying to move in. I don't want to overstate it, move in the direction of understanding feminism, right? You have these glimmers there. Yeah. And how do you think the Bond movies have done over the years? Because the Bond franchise continues to expand and into today's world as well. Do you see there being an arc of breaking the mold? I do overall, definitely. And again, you can find examples maybe early on of some stronger characters. But I think as time goes on, you definitely see... Um, stronger characters, as well as ones that fit into that stereotype. One of my favorites for fitting into the stereotype is Mary Goodnight from um, The Man with the Golden Gun, because she really is dependent on Bond. Um, Bond is very condescending to her. The character is written as to not sort of appear to know her job very well, to not be very good at it. I mean, at one point, she almost kills Bond inadvertently by inadvertently kind of accidentally backing up into a button, which pushes this sort of laser type device that almost incinerates him. And of course he yells at her and he kind of belittles her and things like that. So you have a character like that. And at the same time though, you do get, I think really kind of cool characters, especially as time goes on. So some of my favorites as far as showing or not showing, but sort of countering the the traditional view is I like Melina Havelock from Free Eyes Only, whose parents were killed. And then she goes on a 
a vendetta, right? And she's not going to let Bond stand in her way. She is going to revenge her parents. And she shows just all the characteristics of independence and, and strength and all those things. I also like Pam Bouvier from License to Kill, who was a CIA agent. And sort of the same thing. She can hold her own in this sort of Bond world. And another really favorite one is from Tomorrow Never Dies, and that's Wei Lin, who is a Chinese agent. And there's this wonderful scene with Pierce Brosnan where he's kind of following her back to her her base, not her base, but her kind of where she keeps her sort of weapons and lives and stuff. And she gets ambushed by a bunch of um, the villains, henchmen. And of course, she defeats them all using martial arts. And Bond just sort of sits around, watches the whole thing. But she is a really strong character who resists his sort of usual, you know, approaches and and all of that. Uh, Attempts to seduce her. She's she's a really, really neat character. And then, of course, from a view to a kill, Mayday, who is a really strong, she's a villain, but again, a a really, I think, amazing character. And that, as time goes on, you kind of get more and more of these characters. So In No Time to Die, of course, you have probably one of my favorite Bond characters of all time, Paloma, who is, and one thing about, I think, when analyzing the women in in the Bond world, I think there's this tendency to say they're better if they act masculine, like somehow that makes them then not, (laughs) not that traditional stereotype. But that's, that's, I don't think that's the way to look at it. I think it's, it's to kind of erase any of the expectations and then see what the character does. In the case of Paloma, the way they write her, she's a, a perfect balance of femininity and masculinity. Yeah, so it's all, all within that character. So she can fight the villains as well as Bond can, charm as well as Bond can, right? But in her own way. And then, of course, in the latest movie, Nomi, who is the new um, 007. So a very a wonderful character as well. So what would you like to see, perhaps, as the next, you know, quote unquote, Bond girl, or perhaps where would you like to see it continue to go? I'd like to see it continue where where Bond's colleagues on a one-to-one, yeah, are, are women, right? Because we have this sort of relationship with M, but even that, as M, when, um, when played by a woman, right, even that becomes almost this, almost this sort of mother-son relationship. Even that has these these sort of gender connotations to them. But I know I would just like to see a character almost like Paloma, right? It's almost like if they could bring her back as a, or have a character that balances all of these things and goes to toe-to-toe with Bond. Almost to where a gender doesn't really, you don't even notice it as much, right? That it it just almost erases from view. Yeah, let's hope. (laughs) (laughs) So do you have any final thoughts about the history of Bond Girl or a big takeaway that you think, of when you think of the, the quote unquote bond girl? To me, it's it's what kind of we've been talking about, how we've we've come so far. Mm-hmm. And I hope I oftentimes I find in bond movies, it's almost like moving ahead maybe two feet to then go back three feet. Mm-hmm. Right. And and you wonder what are the writers and the producers thinking where they do such a cool thing and create such a cool character only to counter that that character with something else. So I hope we continue to progress in this way. And also kind of, yeah, understand what gender is, right? So sort of take how maybe, I don't, I don't mean to sound, I'm not trying to sound elitist, but take our understanding that scholars who study these, these James Bond movies and novels and everything have of gender and maybe see that on the screen, right? Something along those lines, a, a sophisticated approach instead of a maybe a, stereo, so a stereotyped approach. Yeah. Because as 
the history of feminism continues with, of course, it started in, in the, the 50s and 60s, the feminism movement. But as it continues to this day, I think you can see it being mirrored a lot within the James Bond franchise, just like when we were talking about the Cold War with James Bond, it very much that pop culture, especially a franchise that has been going on for so long, has a very long mirror to hold up to society. You can kind of see the changes that society has in it. Uh, and I think you can definitely do that with the history of feminism in the Bond girl, as well as perhaps the sexual revolution in the 60s and the Bond girl as well. Definitely. And that kind of goes to the point we were making last time when we were talking about viewing these things as historical documents, mm-hmm. right? That you can really trace in a fun way these changes that happen, but also understand the context, right? So that these movies, especially the early ones where there are some, you know, really questionable things, they come out of a certain context. And I think understanding the context allows us to move forward, right? So certainly they exist for entertainment purposes, but they also exist in an educational way. And I think that'd be kind of neat, you know, as the next generation starts watching them, that they too know, well, try to understand where these things come from and, and why we're looking at them this way. I think that's important. Well, I think that was a fantastic note to end on, unless you have any <laughs> other final thoughts that are... Oh, no, I'm, I'm good. I'm just, it's, uh, I didn't realize when I got into it what an exploding field it was. So <laughs> it's sort of, it's almost any cultural thing you want to look at, you can view through the, the lens of a Bond movie. And I think that's kind of cool. That's really cool. <laughs> then Again is a production of the Cottrell Digital Studio at the Northeast Georgia History Center. Be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. It really helps other people discover the show. There are a few great ways to support the History Center. Make a donation online by clicking the Donate button on our website at www.negahc.org. Become a digital member to receive exclusive invites to members-only live streams every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern. And you can register on our membership page at www.negahc.org. We also have an online gift shop with lots of great items for all ages. Use promo code THENAGAIN for 15% off your online order. Valid on anything except memberships and handmade items. We'll see you next week for another episode of Then Again. Thanks, y'all.